time for short play. Alex Neil Tomba, senior pastor of Northwest Bible Church in Dallas, Texas, is biking across America in an effort to bring people together. If only bringing people together were as easy as riding a bike. Hey, but then again, it worked for Forrest Gump when he ran across the country. I just kept running and running, and I ran some more. Inspirational. That's right. Those were my magic shoes. <laughs> this is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Yeah, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you haven't heard chapter 1, go back to the previous podcast. If you haven't read 1 Thessalonians, push pause, read that, come back. That'll help you with the uh, questions because we're going to dive deep here into the text. What do we got, Nick? Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff here. We're going to start in verse 2. Uh, where Paul talks about how he, we had already suffered, been shamefully treated at Philippi, and that he, they, declared the gospel of God in much in the midst of much conflict there in Thessalonica. So, talk to us for a moment, Alex, about how was Paul mistreated at Philippi, and what opposition did he receive at Thessalonica? Yeah, we touched on this a little bit in the introduction, but this is a reference back to the events recorded in Acts chapter 16. So you can go back and read that. Basically, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they were publicly beaten with rods and then arrested in Philippi after Paul had cast out a spirit of divination from a slave girl. The girl's masters were making money off of her and weren't too happy about their loss of income, so thus they initiated the opposition to Paul and his associates. Now, while the opposition at Philippi seems to be from Gentiles, at least in Acts, when Paul arrives next at Thessalonica, the opposition there stems from unbelieving Jews. So even before the bloodied and bruised backs of Paul and Silas and Timothy could scab over, they were preaching at the synagogue in Thessalonica with boldness. Such testimony would be above reproach. That's why Paul mentions it here. They didn't show up with flattering speech, hoping to get paid, but with beaten bodies, trying to save souls from the wrath to come. I mean, (laughs) who would want to follow somebody who showed up all bloodied and beaten and said, hey, do you want to believe what I believe? (laughs) I mean, no one would, unless it was true. What do you think, Nick? That's a good assessment um, of the uh, data we have in Acts and uh, just the variety of opposition that Paul faced in Philippi then in Thessalonica. And at the same time, uh, I don't think we should forget that uh, Paul probably faced some Jewish opposition while in Philippi. Many, many moons ago, we covered Philippians, the book of Philippians, and specifically chapter 3, verse 2, about the doggish, flesh-mutilating evildoers who Paul counted as the false circumcision, whereas Christians are the true circumcision. And whether they, those were Jewish opponents or Judaizer teachers, uh, there was some Jewish flavor to whatever opposition was going on in Philippi, even though the book of Acts does not record that specifically. That seems to have been a very reasonable thing. 
Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> that's a good. That's a good um, point. If you hear the lightning in the background, this is not the lightning round. So don't be confused. There's a quite the thunderstorm rolling through St. Paul right now. So yeah, that's a delightful little background noise. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, at least to me. Well, what else we got? We got verses three and five, <clears throat> where Paul um, he's essentially defending himself and uh, his. Uh, compatriots as they ministered in Thessalonica. But this defense, specifically, why would Paul feel the need to defend his exhortation to them? Ah, yes. Well, I mean, Paul already acknowledged the good reception that he had with the Thessalonians, and the Thessalonians' own testimony confirms that. We see that in chapter 1, verse 9. And yet there seems to be a mob of Jewish unbelievers relentlessly following him from town to town, trying to discredit him and to harm him in every way. I don't think Paul was afraid that the Thessalonian believers would turn on him or believe the slander being reported about him, but just to encourage them, he brings the voice of sound reason. Go ahead, question Paul's motives. What would he have to gain by showing up already beaten and chased away. He's not even asking for money. I mean, what glory is he getting by being chased and persecuted? What do you think, Nick? Yeah, let's uh, not forget that these Thessalonian Christians, as we talked about in the previous episode about chapter 1, they had turned to God from idols. And so perhaps there were not a few pagans who were raising questions about Paul's motives as well. Sure. Note especially the phrase in verse 3 about our appeal does not spring from impurity is one of the things Paul lists there. Of course, the pagan cultic practices involved heavy sexual impurity at their temples and religious sites. So perhaps one charge that was raised against Paul was that He loved the ladies. You'll remember (laughs) in Acts chapter 17, verse 4, there were many women, even of noble position, who were being converted to Christianity in Thessalonica. And so Ah, the implication, yeah, yeah, the implication of each of these defenses is that perhaps some group, whether Jewish or Gentile, was raising these unfounded charges against Paul. Yeah, I I think that makes sense. We're into verse 4 here, where uh, Paul talks about how uh, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Alex, talk for a second about what made Paul approved by God. You know, this may be a reference back to chapter 1, verse 5, where the word of God they brought was accompanied with power. Uh, But this also adds another element here in chapter 2, verse 4. God approved them because God examined their hearts. They are faithful, first and foremost to God. And uh, otherwise, you know, if they weren't, they wouldn't have bloodied and beaten bodies. Hmm. I mean, they just came from a persecuted uh, Philippi. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, approved means uh, that he and his uh, fellow travelers had been tested and found genuine. Right. And as he explains uh, there at the end of verse 4, it's God who tests our hearts, just as you were talking about. How that happened, what exactly that looked like, um, not exactly explained specifically, but God 
as the heart tester is a regular theme, especially in the Psalms. Here's one example, 26 verse 2 of the Psalms says, Prove me, O Yahweh, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Paul's prayer was the same as the psalmist's prayer, which, by the way, I think should be our prayer. Test our hearts. Test our heart, O God. Um, that's, that's a very good thing, especially if you want to be approved by God. Allow the God who tests hearts uh, to test you and prove you. Absolutely. I mean, when Paul and Silas were in that uh, jail in Philippi, in the dungeon, chained up, they weren't singing lament. They were singing songs of mm-hmm. praise to Yahweh, even though they were, you know, beaten in a cold, damp, dirty dungeon. What else? Next up in verse 6, um, I believe your New American Standard says something about uh, authority here. Yes. What authority does Paul refer to, and what does he do with that authority? Yeah, the text in the New American Standard says that they did not seek glory from mm. them, even though they had the authority to do so. Uh, this is typical language for talking about money and receiving payment. Uh, the apostles of Christ, they had a right to be paid, for sure. First uh, Corinthians 9.14 says, Those who proclaim the gospel get their living from the gospel. Uh, Paul, however, at times forfeited this right while among uh, certain congregations, and he did so while he was among the Thessalonians. Uh, by the way, elders, according to 1 Timothy 5.17, they are worthy of pay as well, especially when they preach and teach. And so again, that core teaching that those who proclaim the gospel get their living from the gospel. And yet, even there, Paul is above reproach. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, uh, glory there could also be... Um translated as praise the NIV that's how it reads is uh, praise that is honor and respect from people uh, perhaps fortune as you mentioned uh, getting money from people but also fame here could be in view I mean who doesn't want their 15 minutes in the spotlight right well I'll tell you who doesn't want that is Paul and the other apostles <laughs> that's who doesn't want that so Paul says elsewhere, of course, his goal, his aim, is always to please God. It's not about seeking glory, praise from people. It's all about glory and praise that comes from God. So, uh, You know who does want Paul to have 15 minutes in the spotlight? Who's that? The mob of unbelieving Jews that are always looking for him. (laughs) It would be easier for him to find. It's like, yes, put him in the spotlight so I can beat him. (laughs) So (laughs) Constantly, man, relentless. Next up we have verse 7. We were gentle with you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Uh, uh, Alex, talk for a moment about how Paul, or in what ways Paul was a nursing mother to these Christians. Yeah, definitely. Um, This characterizes at least two aspects that we can see from the passage, gentleness and care. Uh, Since my wife and I currently have a (laughs) four-month-old, this analogy was especially vivid during my reading of the text. You know, babies obviously require gentleness since they can be easily harmed and also have no way to care for themselves. You know, babies need milk. They can't handle solid food yet. Uh, The feeding then comes straight from the mother's body, and it is a giving of one's self. 
Paul uses these familiar and familial pictures to relate his own experience with the Christians at Thessalonica. He worked double hard night and day so as to give completely of himself while not taking anything from them. And this picture of selflessness, this makes sense. If you have children or if you have seen the real life work that it takes to care for children, especially babies. What do you think, Nick? Excellent coverage there, uh, Alex. Uh, Let me just say how sorely needed those motherly qualities like gentleness are uh, are needed in our society today. They are desperate. Our culture values power, assertiveness, ambitious drive, even at the expense of others. And so the only thing that Paul was desirous of for the Thessalonians was their soul. He says as much in verse 8 about being affectionately desirous of you. Uh, so uh, Paul and his uh, fellow workers, they were gentle. That is, they were considerate of the Thessalonians. They sought to meet the needs of the Thessalonians. They allowed these new babes in Christ to express themselves. Uh, Surely there was correction when necessary, but they were also willing to learn. And so everyone today, especially with the advent of social media and how that seems to gain more ground each day, everyone today wants to be heard. But no Hmm. one wants to listen. Hmm. Or as one of our great urban philosophers, Coolio, has said, (laughs) everybody's running, but half of them ain't looking. Uh, So that's the the culture we live in. (laughs) That's not going to be my one-minute sermon, is it? (laughs) Nope. (laughs) By the way, what song? Uh, Coolio, I don't know. That's right. Gangsta's Paradise. (laughs) Gangsta's Paradise. um, I like the Weird Al Yankovic version. Amish paradise. Amish paradise. (laughs) I know the words to both. Um, Verse. Things things you shouldn't admit on the podcast. (laughs) So, um, verses 8, 9, and 10, uh, there's a lot of good stuff there. Uh, The only thing I want to point out, especially in verse 10, is how uh, holiness and righteousness, those two things are often connected in Scripture, several places where you see that. Uh, but uh, we want to get to verse 11 here because we go from Paul and using he uses the image of a mother, turns right around and uses the image of a father. Uh, for you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted you, etc., etc. here into verse 12. So Alex, talk for a moment about in what ways was Paul like a father to these Thessalonian Christians? Yeah, was Paul uh, having some confusion about his uh, gender identity? Can't keep a coherent thought for more <laughs> than he, two verses. Is he yeah. a mother or a father? Come on, Paul, make exactly. up Exactly. <laughs> no, Paul relates his exhorting, his encouraging, and his imploring to them as something a father does for his children. I just want to talk a little bit about these Greek words. Uh, the Greek parakaleo literally means to call to one side. It's most often translated to urge or to implore, but I like that image of calling someone to one side or calling your son to come to your side. The Greek paramutheomai means to console or to cheer up. And so you think about your child being discouraged or disappointed or frustrated, and what's your job? You cheer them up. Uh, The Greek uh, martyromai means to affirm or testify to the truth. You know, let that be a reminder to all of you fathers out there. In your role 
as father, do not neglect the calling of your child to your side. Do not neglect the calling to cheering them up and to affirming truth in their lives. You know, the reason Paul's spiritual application makes sense here is because the reality of those elements within fatherhood are true. They were true then, and they're true today. And I do think it's interesting how Paul does distinguish between the role of the mother and the role of the father. And then he takes those truths for granted in order to make application to the spiritual truth that he gives to the Thessalonians. Nick, what do you think? Wait a minute. So you're saying that men and women are different with different roles to play in the family and by extension in the church? (gasps) (laughs) You know, that's not a popular thing to say, and yet, I think you're right on the money, it seems biblical. Uh, And you're also right about uh, the multidimensional roles that fathers have. If I could summarize what Paul is getting at here in a single word, I think that word would be instruction. All of the exhorting and encouraging and charging, all the things uh, that, that you mentioned in relation to those words, I think it's all for the purpose of instructing these new babes in Christ in their walk with the Lord. Uh, someone has said, in fact, I think it was on a, a major magazine cover many years ago, Dad is destiny. Hmm. But wait, that's actually in the Bible. The Bible says in Proverbs 17, verse 6, the glory of children is their fathers. Hmm. And so with a spiritual father like Paul, these Christians have all the more reason to glory in that privilege. They were instructed by the Apostle Paul, and that was that's a good and beautiful thing. Yeah, I think that's right, Nick. Well, what do we have here in verse 12? Yeah, this, so Paul's conversation here about like a father with his children bleeds over, and he talks about how he exhorted, encouraged, charged them. That's my English Standard Version there. Uh, all that to, he, he did all that to um, exhort them, encourage them, charge them to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So we're going to talk first of all about that worthy walk here. Uh, Alex, what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of God? Yeah, we saw a similar phrase used back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, calling it a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, it's in a manner worthy of the calling in Ephesians 4, chap- uh, chapter 4, verse 1. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, it's in a manner worthy of the Lord. So slight variation, but pretty much the same idea. One's walk, that's typical Christian vocabulary for how you live your life. So, living your life after becoming a Christian, uh, that becomes a spiritual matter, something you do for God and for Christ Jesus. Your continued fidelity to Christ gets pictured then as a living sacrifice. We see that in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And this is the keynote, really. Continued fidelity. Hmm. A worthy manner does not mean a sinless manner. Uh, That would make us liars. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Uh, a worthy manner does not mean perfect doctrine. Otherwise, Paul needs to readdress all of his epistles as to the apostate churches no longer in Christ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but a worthy manner denotes the idea of one's continued faith, fidelity, and solidarity with God and his kingdom through Jesus Christ. 
Yeah, by no means is it a uh, perfect walk, as uh, as you mentioned. Um, someone has said this, we are not sinless, but we are learning to sin less, which I, I think is, is uh, a very succinct way of putting that. So long as we make it our aim to live the life excellently, although we may trip up, slip up, fall down from time to time, God's grace and Christ's blood is sufficient to remove every and all sin. So a worthy walk would be one in, which is in keeping with appropriate Christian behavior, the right. actions and attitudes which are conformed to the Christian ethic. God calls us through the gospel, and then we align our lives accordingly. And so this touches on kingdom ethics, which the rest of verse 12, uh, Paul talks about how we have been called into his kingdom and glory. So, right, right. Alex, talk for a second about how how are these Christians called into his kingdom? I mean, doesn't God already rule over everything, everywhere? <laughs> right, right. Well, we saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, that we are called through the gospel. So, God has the right to rule all of creation by right of being the creator. However, whether or not he rules in the hearts and minds of men... That depends on the response of each person to the calling. Uh, when one bows the knee to King Jesus, one then switches allegiance from the ruling powers of darkness and the ways of the world over to the power of Christ and the ways of God. But they have to respond to the gospel. Will they switch allegiance or not? What do you think, hmm. Nick? Yeah, I couldn't say it better myself. Uh, some do make a distinction identifying the general rule of God, he rules over all, and the special rule of God over his people. Um, regardless, I think it's true that he rules over all, but he especially rules over those who bow the knee to him. So, Sure, the kingdom within the kingdom. Yeah, here's a real noodle scratcher. We're going to have to spin <laughs> out on this for a while. <laughs> Uh, one thing that Paul says in verse 13 is... Uh, he, he literally says that he prays for the Thessalonians, quote, without ceasing. Um, so when does he sleep? <laughs> right. Well, the answer, Nick, is never. He, uh -huh. he already said he worked day and night in verse 9, Nick. That's right. <laughs> Nick, save me. Save me from my hyperliteralism. <laughs> That's right. Nonstop prayer. Um, how about the real thing about verse 13 here? Um, they received the word um, that, and Paul says, you accepted that word not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God. Is Does that mean that Paul's teaching is really the word of God, Alex? Yeah. You know, you'd be surprised how many people you could talk to today who are Christians who question whether Paul really had authoritative teaching. I mean, it's, it's insane. But according to the Thessalonians, they did receive Paul's word as the word of God. And so the question is, Nick, what right have we today to pick and choose which teaching of Paul that we want and which one we don't want? Wow. Yeah. And so, I mean, it, it's insane. Listen, I put my trust in the New Testament writers, the eyewitnesses of Christ and deliverers of the faith once for all, 
handed down to the saints. Paul was an eyewitness of Christ. He saw the resurrected Jesus. He was called, especially as an apostle, born not, you know, he says in the same timing as the other apostles, but still nonetheless, no less superior to the other apostles. Oh, by the way, Peter, right? The uh, preeminent one, Mm. (laughs) he affirms in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, that Paul is not only a beloved brother, but then he places Paul's writings alongside the rest of Scripture. And that's not to be taken lightly. What do you think, Nick? No, that's right. Um, So I had this idea for later, but it seems like a good place to put it here, and that is um, a crucial, crucial distinction that needs to be made that the Word of God is the Word of God, whether we receive it as the Word of God or not. Uh, there's this neo-orthodox idea which touches on uh, this a little bit, that the word of man, so like Paul and his teaching, the word of man becomes the word of God only when it's received. And that really is just so much high-minded rhetoric. <laughs> uh, Paul, he, he doesn't say that. He says that the Thessalonians accepted his word not because it's the word of man, but because it really was, it really is the word of God. Right. And so, <clears throat> yeah, it Paul, his teaching really was the word of God. It's interesting here, then, that when the Thessalonians heard the voice of these missionaries from us, he says, they heard the voice of God. And so the message spoken was itself the word of God. No wonder then we find elsewhere in Scripture, Hebrews chapter 4, that the Word of God is living and active because right. it still is the Word of God. Right, right. Verse 13, we're still there, uh, and Paul says that these Thessalonian brethren, they received the Word of God. And um, let's talk for a moment here about uh, the Word of God. Is, is, is the Word of God supernatural and how does it work in us he says it's at work in you believers what what does that look like yeah nick i'm reminded of certain philosophical sayings um here's one it goes like this letters are symbols which turn matter into spirit Hmm. i really like that one that was by alphonse de la martine in 1865 Uh, Here's another one by maybe somebody who is more well-known today, Stephen King, in his book on writing from uh, the year 2000. He says, what is writing? Writing is telepathy. Nice. Very, very interesting. Nick, I'm convinced that words, both spoken and written, have a profound effect on people. But it's so normal that we scarcely recognize the power in what we are actually doing when we communicate. You know, something in my head is now in your head, and you're free to do what you want with it. Mm-hmm. Now apply that to God's Word. Something in God's head is now in your head. <laughs> and the effect of receiving such a word is what I would consider supernatural. You quoted Hebrews 4.12, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Why don't you add some more to this for us, Nick? So 
Paul uses a couple different words here. He talks about you received the word of God and you accepted it. Uh, two different words in the original. Um, to receive the, that word is to hear the word, to regard it as true, and to accept it into the heart and mind. And then to accept it is to embrace it as a friend, to welcome it into your life. And I believe also part of receiving the word includes transformation of one's life in accordance with what the word calls us to. And this seems borne out in the immediate context, especially uh, when we get to verse 17 and then also the larger context of the book, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. The key word there is imitation. That's the transformed life. So I want to submit... uh, the the five M's of receiving the word. Hat tip to your boy John Piper. Um, he he says that to receive the word, the five M's are: you memorize it, you meditate on it, you make music with it, you minister with it, and you mind it. That is, you obey it. Um, and I think that's good too about receiving the word of God. And all of that, just as as you were talking, I, I think that indicates yeah something beyond. Just the natural is happening, especially when we keep in mind this is the Word of God, and it is uh, the Word of God. Something supernatural is happening. That's right. Let's move on here to verse 15. And Paul talks about how the Jews, um, they killed the Lord Jesus. They killed prophets. They drove us out. Uh, Who are the Jews here? And which prophets did they kill? Yeah, it's important to recognize the distinction made between the Jews and all Jews. There's a big difference. The Jews here and other places in the New Testament are not all Jews entirely uh, because we see that there are some Jews who receive the gospel. But neither does this mean the Jewish ethnicity as a whole. This phrase, the Jews, specifically denotes a specific group of Jewish unbelievers in the first century who not only rejected Jesus and the gospel, but actively engaged in opposition and persecution of those who did accept Jesus and the gospel. So this is not anti-Semitic. We have to distinguish the group that's being referenced here. What do you think, Mm. Nick? Oh, so you're telling me that Paul, a Jewish man, was not an anti-Semite? <laughs> right, go figure, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, seriously, though, these, these were, uh, these, just as you said, these were Jewish opponents of Christianity. Uh, they were even in opposition to their own kinsmen in the flesh. Uh, not only Paul, but also their fellow Jews who had converted to Christianity. There's a, right. no doubt a substantial portion of the Thessalonian church that was Jewish, Uh, in uh, their ethnicity. So, well, verse 16, Paul talks about how they were hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Why would these Jewish opponents here, the Jews, as Paul styles them, why would they not want the Gentiles to be saved? Yeah, it's not that they don't want the Gentiles to be saved. It's just the wording of verse 16 is a little clumsy in our English translation. The idea is that The Jews Paul has in mind have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. They consider it heresy. It's worthy of death for those who accept it. So Paul is the one who wants the Gentiles to be saved through the gospels, but the Jews are operating on the idea that 
No, the Israelites, they are still the privileged race of God's people. And if Gentiles want to be saved, uh, then it's only going to happen while under the thumb of Jewish rulership. And that will occur when the Messiah appears. He'll reunite all of scattered Israel. Now, this obviously clashes with the New Testament teaching that Jews and Gentiles are one new man in Christ Jesus, fellow heirs and descendants of Abraham. So there's just some clearing up, I think, what needs to happen there in the verse. What do you sure. think? Sure. And it's unfortunately the all too familiar story, isn't it? I mean, Israel in rebellion against God, uh, whereas upon previous occasions like the wilderness wanderings, the judges period, the kings of Israel, uh, on those previous occasions it had been the entire nation. Now in view, as we talked about, are those nationalistic Jews who reject Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah. Uh, and that, that really is the tragedy uh, in all this. Well, <clears throat> yeah. in verse 16, we have an interesting phrase here. Why don't you unpack this for us? What does it mean for people, and talking about the Jews here apparently, what does it mean for them to fill up the measure of their sins? One image that is prevalent throughout prophetic literature is the image of the cup of wrath. And it's as if sin, sins are poured into that cup until it is full and overflowing, and then God will make a nation drink that cup of his wrath to the dregs, whereby once they have sufficiently drunk it to the dregs, they become drunk, and they stagger around, and then he cuts them down in his wrath. <clears throat> Isaiah 51, verse 17, also 22, uh, Jeremiah 25, verse 15, and Daniel 8 and verse 23, all good examples of this idea. However, there are others who look at that phrase, to fill up the measure of their sins, and they see here a statement of the fact of the fullness of the sins themselves. In other words, every time that... Uh, these Jewish opponents persecuted the church or even kill one of God's people. That sin is full in itself. This is uh, the Lutheran commentator Lenski, his view on this. I think behind this view is the cross. In other words, the execution of the Son of God, that makes all sin pregnant in and of itself. The way that this is written, and you couple it with the Old Testament passage, which Paul, he had that coursing through his veins, I'm inclined to see the former view, that there is this breaking point when God has had enough of sin, and he pours out his wrath upon sinners, and specifically here are, again, those Jewish opponents who have rejected the Messiah, and that culminated, by the way, just mm, less than two decades before, maybe, that culminated in the crucifixion of Jesus, the Messiah, right. on the cross. So, right. That's what I'm seeing here. You want to add anything to that? No, I think that's good. Filling up the measure of their sin. So this this cup image, like you said, from the Old Testament, where it fills up, and once it's full, God pours it out. And that's what's in store for the uh, Jewish nation uh, and for Jerusalem, for Judea in uh, 
the coming decades after Paul writes this letter, which ties into our next question, Nick. Sure does. Uh, The rest of verse 16, but wrath has come upon them at last. I thought thought wrath was a future prospect at the end of time, Alex. How, How has wrath come upon them at last? Yeah, we did see back in chapter 1, verse 10, that the future wrath to come was mentioned. And uh, that did sound like the the judgment to come in the resurrection. And yet here we have in chapter 2, verse 16, that wrath to the utmost already was upon them in verse 16. So since we're talking about the Jews, the filling up the measure of their sins, I'm going to say that the wrath refers to here to all of the judgments that God sent upon Judea that led up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, obviously, the destruction has not yet taken place. Um, That will take place in AD 70. Paul is writing here in the early 50s. But we do know that famine has already gripped the land. In fact, in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, the prophet Agabus prophesies that a great famine will come over all of Judea. And this was something that would happen during the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, we know from history that Claudius reigns until A.D. 54. So we can then assume that the famine begins before that year. And thus we have collections being made for all of the saints in Judea in the following verses. Acts chapter 11, verses 29 through 30. And Paul and Barnabas, they will be the deliverers of that contribution. We see in 1 Corinthians, again, chapter 16, that collections are still being made and will be carried to Jerusalem. And since we date 1 Corinthians to the early 50s as well, that seems like a good guess for the timing of the great famine. And I believe that the famine was first prophesied not by Agabus, but by Jesus. And That was concerning all of the signs and wonders that would lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. You can go back to Matthew 24, verse 7, Mark 13, verse 8, Luke chapter 21, verse 11. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, uh, again, connecting it with the previous uh, question about this verse. uh, Since sin has reached its limit, that's how the NIV puts it, now wrath comes, and God will allow a nation or people group, perhaps even scalable to an individual, to accumulate so much sin before he finally comes in judgment. This is particularly clear in Genesis 15 and verse 16 about the Amorites. Their sin had not reached its limit. And yet, over 400 years later, after the Exodus, their time had come. And uh, that's when Israel came and took the land. So Well, Nick, moving on to verse 18. It says here that Satan hindered Paul. How did Satan hinder Paul? And can he and his spiritual forces of darkness still do this today? What do you think? Yeah, so in verse 16, Paul says that it was his Jewish opponents who hindered him and his companions from preaching to the Gentiles. But now here, in verse 18, it is Satan who used these disobedient people for his purposes. That was the guy behind the scenes, as it were, the being behind the scenes. He does exert influence in the minds of people. If not, why are we told that the battle is for our thoughts? Like Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, we need to take all our thoughts captive in obedience to Christ. Hmm. I must concede that 
the precise method that Satan used to hinder Paul is not made clear here. And a number of suggestions have been made, but here's what I want to say. Satan is real. The war between light and darkness continues to today. So I am persuaded that, yes, the spiritual forces of darkness still do things like this today. Right. I believe God opens doors and he closes doors. But I also believe that Satan and his forces, they open doors and close doors too. Right. It takes spiritual discernment to be able to identify which is which. It takes spiritual discernment to to navigate a God-pleasing course. Uh, This may be connected with what we saw earlier in this chapter about God who tests our hearts. Without spiritual discernment, how will we pass the test? How will we know which doors are of God and which are not? And in addition to this, Satan, he will do all he can, that is all that God permits him to do, in order to roadblock the cause of Christ. And so... He did it then, yeah. I, I think he still does it today. You want to yeah, add on here? I'll just add on that uh, it does seem like spiritual warfare is more than just um, God uh, toying with the devil. You know, this is real warfare. There are real victories and there are real losses. And these are all free willed beings who are players on the board. And so while we believe God ultimately gains the victory, um, it's not uh, some uh, toying uh, with the forces of darkness that God does uh, along the way to the final day of judgment. I mean, this what we do makes a difference. What we pray makes a difference. And so how things will get to the end may be unknown. The end, yes, will be victory. But... Until then, there's a lot that needs to be done, and how that unfolds may depend on what Satan does and what we do. Well, what else, Nick? The last two verses here, Paul talks about uh, how the Thessalonians are his hope, joy, crown, and glory. Um, so, Alex, how does that work? You know, how, how do the Thessalonians serve as Paul's hope, joy, crown, and glory? Yeah, you would think this would be the language... Paul would use in reference to Christ Jesus. Jesus is my hope. He's my joy, crown, and glory. But no, Paul says this about the Thessalonians. And he had already mentioned hope, right? That the Thessalonians, they had hope in Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 3. We alluded to that in the last episode. We'll see that this hope is connected to their salvation in chapter 5, verse 8. But curiously, we have here the Thessalonians themselves are the hope that Paul has for himself. What's going on here? I believe this goes back to what we already covered in our Philippians podcast episodes. You can check the archives for that. In short, we have been gifted salvation. That is the justification that comes through grace by faith in Christ Jesus. But the work we do for Christ and his kingdom will be something rewarded in the resurrection. This is not salvation, but in addition to salvation based on our works. Paul rejoices over the Thessalonians because of their faithfulness. That means that he has not worked in vain. That's the very first verse of chapter 2. He has not worked in vain. Paul knows that he will be greatly rewarded for whatever work of his, namely the faith of the Thessalonians, withstands the testing and trials of fire, bringing it back to that testing and examining of the heart again. The rewards are probably 
related to our resurrection body, probably related to the uh, reign and dominion that will be given under the reign of King Jesus in the world to come, uh, things along that line. So that's my thoughts on the rest of chapter 2. What about you, Nick? Do you have any final thoughts? <clears throat> no, I think we've, uh, we've upholstered the subject very nicely. All right. Well, I think that brings us to our one-minute sermon. Yep. Alex and I are both preachers. We know Sunday's coming, and so we want to help out all the preachers in the audience by giving them the start for a Sunday morning or Sunday evening and or Sunday evening sermon. We're going to give each other a song title. I don't know what he selected for me. He doesn't know what I've selected for him. Uh, it could be from any genre of music, but we're going to give each other these song titles, and we have to come up on the spot with the text in the beginnings of a sermon uh, called, again, it's One Minute Sermon. So That's right. And, and I think last week, yeah, Nick went first, right? So I have to go yeah. first this time, yeah. <clears throat> so here's, here's what I got for you. Okay. <clears throat> then it all crashes down, and you break your crown, and you point your finger, but there's no one around. Just want one thing, just to play the king. But the castle's crumbled, and you're left with just a name. Where's your crown, King Nothing? King Nothing from Metallica. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) You have karaoke. Good karaoke, by the way. One minute on the clock. (laughs) What's What's the name of the song again? Hold on. What's the name? King Nothing from Metallica. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. King Nothing. All right. Here we go. One minute on the clock and go. Okay, so in the Old Testament, we see in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14 that when God is judging uh, the king of Babylon and then also the king of Ture, that he compares their arrogance and their downfall to another ancient rebel, one from the garden, who was a guardian, Keruv, and this is the serpent, the shining one. This is the one who desired to sit in the seat of the throne of the assembly of the north. That's right. Satan wanted to be king. He wanted to sit on the divine council as the head of the council. He wanted to dethrone Yahweh, and in punishment, what he got in return was he gets to be king of nothing. He gets to be cast down to the underworld, to, like a snake, eat dust all the days of his life. But snakes don't eat dust, and yet man is made out of dust and returns to dust and he becomes Lord of the dead. So he is sent to the farthest place away from Yahweh, the underworld. And this dark ruler is now king of nothing, and he will be king of nothing. Nice. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) That's awesome. All right. Old school. Was that my, did I use my full minute? Yeah, yeah, that was full minute plus okay. uh All right. pl- plus like 2 seconds. So <clears throat> <laughs> Okay. Excellent. Well, Nick, prepare yep. yourself. Okay. Uh I am prepared. It means no worries for the rest of your days. It's a problem-free philosophy. Nick, give me a 1-minute sermon on Hakuna Matata. From the Lion King. (laughs) Here we go. Starting now. 
It's got to be what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the end of chapter 6. Right there in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about how we are not to worry about what we eat or drink or what clothes that we wear. And God, he cares for us. Uh, He cares for the birds. He takes care of them, and yet we are more valuable than birds. Uh, We could go to uh, Philippians chapter 4 as well. Take a trip over there that we are not to worry about anything, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we are to present our requests to God with uh, prayer and thanksgiving. And uh, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, We are not allowed to worry. Instead, we are to take everything to God in prayer. Leave it there at the throne. Don't pick it back up and try to fix it ourselves. We've got to allow God to be God and handle our business for us when we worry. Hakuna Matata. That's right. (laughs) Well done. Good sermon, Nick. (laughs) That ought to get us started for Sunday. Starting in the right direction. That's right. I think our karaoke is getting better every week. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, we want to thank everybody for listening. Go into the iTunes store or the Google Play Music store, and you can search Swordplay. You'll find our podcast in both of those places. You can download them to your particular device. Leave a review. uh, Share this on social media. Help us get the word out about this podcast so we can bless even more people with it. That's right, and we'd love to answer any questions you have, whether you agree or disagree with anything we've said. Just send your thoughts to uh, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, you can reach Nick on his personal cell phone number. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) until until next week, uh, we'll see you again on uh, another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.